In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Brian Kemp is pulling away, so David Perdue cashes in a favor from Trump. People are very divided in our party right now, and I'm trying to bring them back together by giving them a choice. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast that promises to be your source for the most in-depth information about the race for governor and the race for Senate in 2022. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, joined by my fellow AJC political insider, Patricia Murphy. It's our Friday recap episode. So, Patricia, what have you been doing this week? Greg, I've been doing a little of this, a little of that. A few columns, a couple jolts, a few visits to the Capitol and whatnot. <laughs> what have you been doing? We've, I've, I've been with you at some of those. We, we both went oh, to the right. Buckhead Cityhood Fun um, of the, the press conference where the Buckhead Cityhood folks said, we will press on even this year, even though the two legislative leaders say it is not going to happen. And I've also been in the Capitol and will be all over the state on Friday for several campaign stops. If you're listening to us for the first time, please make sure to follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider. And coming up later, we'll look at how Brian Kemp is using his executive powers to strengthen his hold on the state and cater to conservatives. We'll also do our weekly winners and losers segment. Title to be determined, Patricia, we heard from friend of the show, Brian Tolar, who said, suggested uh, nuts and bolts. But my problem with that is both nuts and bolts seem like losers to me. <laughs> well, I, I feel like there must be some winners. And I don't know if you would be a winner if you are not or a bolt. I agree. We need, uh, no offense to Brian Tolar, we need to, to keep, uh, keep. Yeah, sorry, keep sorry Brian, but that's not going to make the cut. Sorry, buddy. Our producer, Jay Black, <laughs> said no way. But we're, we're going to try out a few, uh, a few different names later on in the show. But let's lead off with the governor's race. And David Perdue is putting in the mileage. We're here in Hunter, Georgia, um, in deep south Georgia. We've been all over the state the last few weeks, since actually since December, trying to get the word out about why I'm running uh, and to give people a choice in this race for governor. Not to be the pronunciation police, but it's nay Hunter, isn't it? Um, yes. But <laughs> I've been to the Dairy Queen uh, <laughs> on campaign stops. Look, Patricia, new polling shows that his his very aggressive campaign strategy is not paying off yet. He's still got time, but we saw a poll from Trafalgar Group just the other day that showed Brian Kemp at 49, David Perdue at 40. If there's good news in there for for David Perdue, though, it's that 40% of the electorate still thinks that Donald Trump has not weighed in on this race. And strangely enough, about 3% of voters think that Republican voters think that he has endorsed Brian Kemp. So, David Perdue still has an opening, but it's 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 a tough road ahead for him. 
Yes. I wonder if he thought it was going to be this tough. And along with the polling, I think what we have all seen that would have raised an alarm if I was running for governor against Brian Kemp. Um, David Perdue has not been able to raise lots of money. He has um, less than a million dollars in the bank. Brian Kemp has about $13 million in the bank. That is just a gigantic disparity. When you've uh, really don't have a whole lot of time left in this primary. So what David Perdue is doing is what he can control. And I want to give him some credit here. He is going everywhere. He is traveling across the state and he is making these events open press. And that's a change of pace from the David Perdue that we covered in 2020 and 2021. So that's a new David Perdue uh, strategy that we haven't seen a whole lot uh, before. And so uh, he is trying to generate press get in front of everybody he can, but he's doing it in these tiny little towns, trying to vacuum up, you know, groups of 10, 20, 30 voters at a time. He's going to need some money to uh, really start to uh, scale up his appeal to people. I think also the problem is, is that even among GOP voters, it's not entirely clear if a Donald Trump endorsement would necessarily be good news with all 40% of those people who don't know about the Trump endorsement. Um, they will know about it soon. We do have news on that front. Um, but it is uh, not it is not exactly the runaway train that David Perdue probably thought he was getting on when he started this whole uh, enterprise. Yeah, let's get to both those points right now, because you're right. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll just in January showed that Trump's endorsement doesn't hold the punch that it doesn't pack the punch it used to. You know, still about 44% of Republicans say they're more likely to vote for a candidate endorsed by Trump than not. But significant numbers also said it didn't matter to them or that they were even less likely to vote for a Trump endorsed candidate. And then when it comes to the general election, about half of Georgia's vote registered voters say that a Trump endorsement would make them less likely to back a candidate. So Trump's prestige is really on the line here, not just in this race, but in the four others he's endorsed, including a race we'll talk about in another show down the road, but the 10th district where he endorsed Vernon Jones. But you know, to your point earlier about how more people are about to find out about Trump's endorsement, earlier on Thursday, we reported that Donald Trump is holding a giant fundraiser for David Perdue to try to help him cut into Brian Kemp's financial advantage. This is a fundraiser that starts at $3,000 just to get into a reception uh, for a picture. Donors are encouraged to raise all told about $24,000. So for a candidate who is way behind Brian Kemp in fundraising, David Perdue only has has less than a, a million dollars in the bank, has about $900,000 in the bank compared to Brian Kemp's nearly $13 million. This will help him cut into that edge. And also part of the deal is that Donald Trump is expected to come to Georgia once, maybe even twice before the May 24th primary. Yes. Uh, two, at least two things that I'm looking for the answers to coming up here with uh, David Perdue and fundraising. Will he put any of his own money into this race? We know that David Perdue is a wealthy man. I think people watching this race really expected him to reach into his own pocket and put in, you know, maybe we were hearing up to $2 million uh, that he might start sort of self-fund in order to see this effort. He needs that money. If I was a donor, I would be looking for a little <laughs> a little starter fund started by the candidate just to give myself confidence that this was money well spent. Also, um, David Perdue uh, should really be vacuuming up a lot more small dollar donations than he is. Typically, the uh, pro-President Trump crowd really does well, very well with small dollar donations. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the perfect example of that. 
more than two thirds of her money comes from those unitemized $20, $30, $40 checks. There's a huge grassroots uh, network out there. Um, but those network, that network of small dollar funders are getting bombarded by other pro-Trump candidates. And so David Perdue is finding he needs to compete with other well-known conservatives and Donald Trump supporters, other Trump-endorsed candidates. There are five GOP primaries right now that Trump's gotten involved in and is raising money for. And then also Donald Trump is raising money for himself. So I don't know how big this pot of billionaires <laughs> money is or small dollar donations. So we'll see. You know, he's not the first Georgia candidate to get a Mar-a-Lago uh, fundraiser. That was Herschel Trump who got it first out of the box. He did raise Herschel a ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> did I say Herschel Trump? Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what? Herschel Walker <laughs> won't mind that. <laughs> he, he won't mind that. He won't mind that. With, with Donald Trump. <laughs> That now, unlike David Perdue, I think we all know that Herschel Walker has been recruited by Donald Trump uh, to, to get into this race. So I think David Perdue, you know, 40 percent is not the worst number you've ever seen in the world, but he definitely has room to grow. But there are a few barriers to that growth right now. Yeah, there are. Um, and one of them is that Herschel Walker doesn't have to worry about an incumbent Republican who's challenging. He has a wide open re Republican primary field, whereas David Perdue is going up against a incumbent governor who wields the powers of his office quite effectively. We'll talk about a little bit about that in a bit. But first, Brian Kemp's huge financial advantage, and he's helped by Republican Governors Association. This is the first time ever that the RGA, which is a very well-funded, powerful group based in Washington that supports Republican governors, obviously by the name, this is the first time this group has ever financed a TV ad for an incumbent governor who's facing a Republican primary challenge. Let's listen. Georgia has a proven conservative leader fighting back. Governor Brian Kemp. Kemp cut taxes, creating one of America's fastest growing economies and good paying jobs. And Governor Kemp sent the National Guard to the border to help stop illegal drugs flooding into our communities. So Patricia doesn't mention David Perdue, doesn't, of course, mention Donald Trump. It does mention these conservative policies and approaches that the governor has stuck to. And a reminder, too, that he's the first lifelong Republican governor in state history. And, you know, what he's doing around the state, and he's going to have a huge five-stop campaign trail day this week, what he's going around the state doing is reminding folks that, that, you know, that he's not some moderate. He is, he is, he is you know, perhaps the most conservative governor we've seen in modern Georgia history. Yeah, that RGA ad is so relevant and important because that really is a group, a D.C.-based group, very powerful, very, very friendly with incumbents. And that would include incumbent senators as well. David Perdue would have a lot of ties to that group. Uh, he would not, David Perdue would not be considered a sort of fly-by-night radical uh, nobody to get into this race who they felt like, uh, the RGA felt like Kemp needed to be protected against. This is a real choice between two gentlemen who are other wise conservative. And it's a real statement that the establishment in D.C. is squarely behind uh, uh, Governor Brian Kemp. That also is going to lead to fundraising challenges for David Perdue. It's a real loud signal. We are not taking this race for granted. And by the way, don't give money to anybody besides Brian Kemp. That's what that message is all about. Also, it really speaks to one of the challenges that I think David Perdue is going to continue to find 
And is that any kind of actual, real, legitimate wedge issue between him and Brian Kemp? Because Brian Kemp is not a rhino. Brian Kemp is a conservative governor. Had Brian Kemp not gone up against Donald Trump during the 2020 election aftermath, I don't think we'd be having this conversation at all. There's nothing that he hasn't done on guns, abortion, at this point, critical race theory, all of the buzzwords and topics that conservatives want to see action and movement on. Brian Kemp has been there. And so I think that we see in David Perdue's list of issues and list of priorities, he's having a hard time finding spaces to really put distance between himself and Brian Kemp other than the 2020 election. And so a group like RGA looks at somebody like Brian Kemp, they're very happy. They have no reason to change horses midstream. And it's uh, continuing to give uh, a challenge to David Perdue because other than the election, there's not that much that Republicans have to quarrel with. Yeah, we've seen we've seen David Perdue try to drive a wedge on a few other issues, right? Saying that he would he would eliminate the state income tax and the thirteen or fourteen billion or so revenue that it's tied to, uh, that he would have acted more aggressively to expand gun rights and to block local schools from enforcing mask mandates and things like that. But you know, by and large, we're talking about basically he's saying he would have gone further to the right quicker than Brian Kemp would have. It's kind of a in a parallel universe, in an alternate universe. If David Perdue wasn't challenging Brian Kemp, would Brian Kemp be moving to the center right now? Would he have acted to expand Medicaid? Would he have focused more on broad-based issues and you know, embrace some conservative talking points, but focus more on broad-based issues to get ready for, for Stacey Abrams? Or would he still be pursuing this? And there are some Brian Kemp aides and allies who say this is exactly what he would have done even if there wasn't a David Perdue challenge. I don't know if I buy it. But certainly, we're seeing him move so far to the right, or maybe even stay so far to the right. You can make that argument. He's staying so far to the right that it's giving David Berdu a little breathing room. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And obviously, we'll never know. Brian Kemp will never know what would have happened if he had not It'll be in my comic book about an alternate universe. (laughs) I'm an illustrator on the side. (laughs) We call those graphic novels now, Greg. Oh, you're right. Good point. Um, You know, although something that I have been thinking about, um, because... David Perdue is in this race. And because now we know, as of today, that Donald Trump and the Trump family, et cetera, are going to be in Georgia stumping for David Perdue, what is that going to look like? And is that going to further damage Brian Kemp in the process? Because when uh, Donald Trump comes here for David Perdue, he's not going to be saying what Perdue is saying was, well, I like him a lot. I just think that he didn't do the right thing on the election. That is not going to be the message from Donald Trump. It's going to be you can't trust him. I knew I couldn't have trusted him. I knew I never should have endorsed the guy. You know, he's going to just be just hammering Brian Kemp and Republicans are going to hear that. You know, they can't not hear that. And uh, is the earth going to be so scorched after Donald Trump gets done with this race? Is it even going to matter which one of those two guys wins? Is Mm -hmm. it going to be a party that can unite in June after they've had this gigantic fight and uh, battle to the death in May? We're going to find out. We are full of questions on today's Politically Georgia podcast, and we'll be back with some answers when we come back. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. 
Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back with answers to different questions here at Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Look, one thing we do know we have answers for is that there will be a morning jolt every weekday, except for holidays, uh, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. That is for subscribers to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's something that Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell up in Washington, and your host, Greg Bluestein work so hard on every day and every night. If you aren't a subscriber, go to subscribe.ajc.com backslash podcast. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. How can you beat that deal unless it's free? Then subscribe.ajc.com backslash podcast to get unlimited digital access to the best journalism in Georgia. Jay, that is, you know, you are raising the bar here with your promos. I love it. It's true. So... It is, it as, far is as, we, as far as we know. Is as far as we know. We don't I would like that. to say I hear from some uh, listeners and readers who would like the jolt to be free. To which I say, do you steal tomatoes out of the grocery store? No, you know, good things cost. Good things cost money. Well, I mean, I mean, Greg and Patricia are worth paying for, right? So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now a, bu- a buck, but they're worth a buck. Yeah, at least. I mean, come on. <laughs> a month. A buck. Uh, a month. <laughs> 80s, think about it, a quarter of a cup of coffee uh, at Starbucks. So, you know, here are some of the answers we do have. We know for sure that Governor Kemp, he is using the sweeping authorities of the governor's office to bolster, strengthen his conservative credentials ahead of this May 24th primary. And I felt like this is the week that really exemplified that. Because think, Patricia, in the last couple of days, what has Kemp done? He has corralled lawmakers to back a essentially a ban on school mask mandates, saying that parents should now have the option under state law, if this proposal passes, whether or not to send their kids to, to school with wearing masks. He has finished a very carefully coordinated year-long overhaul of the Board of Regents to ensure that Sunny Purdue, the first cousin of David Purdue, will be the next chancellor of the higher education system in Georgia. And thirdly, in a lightning fast move that surprised the entire legal world. I know this sounds wonky, but it's a big deal. He appointed a 35-year-old appellate court judge named Andrew Pinson, who is a former clerk of Clarence Thomas, appointed him to the state's highest court. This is a move that really thrilled a lot of conservatives who, who were paying attention in the legal world, but also alienated a lot of veteran lawyers and, and judicial experts and uh, potentially other applicants who felt like there should have been the typical drawn out legal process. There is nothing in the law that requires that. And Governor Kemp is using those powers to impose his will on all branches of state government, from the legislative branch, to judicial branch, to, of course, the executive branch for Sonny Perdue. That was kind of all three in one fell swoop this week. If you look at um, sort of descriptions of different governorships and uh, governor's offices around the country, Georgia has one of the most powerful governor's offices in terms of its constitutional authorities. And Brian Kemp has really, I think we see here, 
mastered that at this point. He really is able to come in and really set the agenda for the entire state. It really is him saying what he wants to talk about, what he wants to see coming out of legislation, what he wants these really important boards and judicial branches to look like. And he's making choices today that are going to outlast Brian Kemp when he is not the governor anymore. It's very possible that Sonny Perdue, it would be a, I believe that's a seven-year term, Sonny Perdue will be here long after Brian Kemp. Let's pretend, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, let's pretend uh, that Brian Kemp did not win re-election. Um, Andrew Pinson is going to continue to serve on on uh, the state's highest court, regardless of what happens. So this is Brian Kemp leaving his mark on the state for years and years to come. So no matter who wins after this, they're going to be Brian Kemp appointees all across the state at every level. And then also we're going to continue to be talking about either furthering or unwinding Brian Kemp agenda items because he has really been aggressive in putting his mark on this uh, governor's mansion, on the state capitol, um, and on branches of the government that he doesn't even run. So I think it's been uh, really fascinating. It's also an interesting choice in an election year. I want to say here that there is no pleasing everybody with these appointments when he put out his entire everybody apply online and and try and be the next senator, that wasn't such a big hit. That didn't go over very well. When he just uh, picks the next day, this has not been a huge hit. I have heard from a number of uh, readers and uh, actually attorneys who have worked with Andrew Pinson, and, and uh, they have said mm-hmm. in their experience, he is not a kind of a rogue partisan. They feel like he's a very, uh, very kind of high level jurist. I think anybody who gets a a Supreme Court clerkship, we know is going to be at the very least, you know, at the top of their class. So I've heard some, you know, some people happy with the Andrew Pinson pick. Some of the least happy were the ones who thought they might be applying for that job themselves. Yeah. And, and who wanted, you know, the judicial process, wanted at least a shot at it. Right. And, and I think people were stunned by how quick it went. But look, I heard from Supreme Court Chief David Namias, who called and made it very clear two things. He said this was not a deal he cut with the governor. He didn't try to, you know, arrange for a certain nominee or, or, or anything in return. He surprised the governor along with the rest of the legal world with his announcement that he was retiring last week. And, you know, and, and had no role. And secondly, he said he had no role whatsoever. He admires and respects Judge Pinson, but he had no role in the process and no input on on how that selection would be done. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the people who were probably most upset were the ones who thought they had a shot at it. And and I, I loved your point also. There, there could very well be a, depending on how November goes, a Governor Stacey Abrams with a Sonny Perdue, you know, one of her predecessors in charge of the higher education system. And, you know, you you talked about the changes in the judicial branch and the executive branch because the governor has also appointed hundreds, in the, even in the last few weeks, dozens of appointees to boards and agencies that would still outlast his term and it would still continue to push conservative policies even if he's not the next governor. Um, but also on the legislative branch, I won't be surprised if we hear about a special session that would be time for November or December, just in case. You know, it might be it might be the reason might be because of some disaster emergency or or some need to immediately go back to Capitol to deal with some pressing issue. But it could just be a hedge, just in case a Democrat wins, so that lawmakers, while they're still Republican in power, could roll back executive 
branch power. So we'll see. It's just a prediction early on. It happened in North Carolina. What do you know, go, Greg? What do I don't you know, know anything. <laughs> I just know how I just know how the minds of the Capitol think. And I know that that's happened in other states, including in North Carolina, when a Democrat won the governor's race in a Republican controlled state. So that's just putting that out there. Um, let's talk about the Senate race too, real quick, because of course that's still chugging along. It is less thrill a minute than the governor race because not, not only is Herschel Walker ahead in polls, but according to this latest poll, he is at 70%. We saw the Q poll showing him at 80%. This latest poll shows him at 70%. Either way, you can tell he's not worried um, at this juncture about his primary challengers because he hasn't uttered any of their names yet. He has never said, to my knowledge, he's never attacked or criticized Gary Black or Latham Sadler or Kelvin King or, or any other uh, Republicans running against him. Instead, he's focused his fire either on uh, Joe Biden or on Senator Raphael Warnock. Yes, I am hearing uh, some anxiety among rank and file Republicans about this particular strategy for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, everybody gets it. Everybody understands if you're at 70%, just do what you do. Like, do not rock the boat. However, there is real anxiety among Republicans. They do not know what they're getting with Herschel Walker in terms of what kind of stump speech is he going to be giving? How is he going to perform in debates? How does he uh, perform when he is laying out policy positions? This is not going to be a race that hinges on policy, but he needs to be able to uh, get into the weeds of some level of policy, have a back and forth. Um, and that it's just not known at this point, even this far into the race with Herschel Walker, how he's going to perform in situations like that because he has been so shielded from the general public in terms of uh, kind of more open forum, open press events. He's having lots of events. He's going around to towns, but they're smaller. They're controlled. There is no give and take back and forth with anybody except very supportive friends of the candidate to um, to sort of tee up a question and be patient for his answer. Republicans are saying, I hope this goes okay. You know, they <laughs> love having a guy who is well known, very well liked for reasons that have nothing to do with politics, which is a great attribute in a political candidate. And a guy who's able to raise tons of money. And it's from sources that really aren't dipping into a lot of the same pots that traditional Republicans um, are getting into because uh, Herschel Walker has his own rich friends and he it really is a good friend of Donald Trump. So he has a lot of attributes that Republicans are very pleased with, but it's the unknown of Herschel Walker. And none of those questions have really been answered as this campaign has slogged on. Um, they, they just don't know what they're going to be getting, but it certainly is looking increasingly like Republicans are going to be getting Herschel Walker as their nominee for Senate. And it's not like he has gone unscathed at all. He's had hit after hit. And there's, of course, there's more coming out. But looking into his past, Herschel Walker's past, looking into violence and accusations of violence against women, especially women he was close to, ex-wives and close friends and, and issues like that. And of course, scrutiny of his business practices. So he's been hit a lot. The fire is coming from from other Republicans, it's coming from the media, it's coming from Democrats in some cases, but it has seemed like it has very little effect on his poll numbers thus far with the polls that we've seen at least um, coming out. So that is something we will continue to watch and continue to report on because we've, we've got a lot more coming on that front as well. But Patricia, I want to get to your favorite segment, which is our weekly mailbag because we get the best questions from our listeners and our readers and our viewers. 
And this one comes from, this one's a special one. This one comes from Penelope Proctor Smith of Thomasville, way down near the Florida border. She asks, guys, who is the strangest candidate you've ever had to cover? Penelope, what a great question. I will, I'll throw it to Patricia. Patricia, take Penelope's question. I'm going to go with Donald Trump. (laughs) I got to go with Donald J. Trump on that one. I mean, is there any other less expected, can't believe it, what am I looking at? It's actually working. Oh my gosh, he won. What is happening? I I mean, just like Donald Trump, just because it's well-known doesn't mean it's not still, it's just a, a crazy turn of events. So I do, I still, I do really think that Donald Trump is my strangest candidate to cover. Although I remember the very first event I covered of him, uh, he was not remotely being taken seriously. He was the 11th on stage at a forum of 12 GOP candidates. And most people were just talking about um, kind of in real life, the consistency of his hair is kind of like cotton candy. It's like orange cotton candy. And that was really (laughs) all people were talking about. And then, you know, lo and behold, 16 months later, he was uh, being sworn in on the West front of the Capitol. I have to agree, but I'll go. I've covered a lot of strange candidates. I mean, I don't have to look back too far to think about 2018 when Michael Williams was running for governor as a Republican and even like went so far as to have a deportation bus to talk about how he would deport undocumented uh, immigrants. And the damn bus broke down in the middle of the highway. And, <laughs> you know, we hadn't been really covering his campaign. But I couldn't help but cover that part. And he got all mad at me because you've been writing about me for weeks and now you're writing about this. Ended up getting, what, 2% in the race. But I will have to say, I can't name him because he's still an active candidate. But there was a candidate who got into a statewide race in a not-so-distant election cycle, dropped out of the race. We wrote about him dropping out of the race. He was never going to win. He was a long shot. But then wanted to be involved in the debate. And I had to... And even threatened to take legal action against <laughs> against uh, the venue f- that was holding the debate because he wasn't being allowed to participate in the debate. And it was the strangest conversation I've ever had because you're not in the race anymore, and yet you want to be part of the debate, but you've already withdrawn your candidacy. What do you hope to accomplish? It was the most confusing, befuddling conversation. And finally, it got to the resolution that it needed to get to, but... You talk about having like a frustrating <laughs> circular conversation, like you're not running for office anymore. Why do you want to be part of the debate? Um, you know, I'm going to throw in my my second strangest candidate was Rudy Giuliani and his brief oh, yeah. presidential run. Um, I saw him at a tiny little town in Iowa and he and his entire entourage of three-piece suited, hair slicked back, super shiny shoes, um, tight, uh, you know, like kind of tight, narrow pants, just a very, a very Manhattan crowd descended upon uh tiny, tiny little Iowa town. And it, it seemed like it wasn't a good fit. And You know, uh, you were just describing Jay Black. So <laughs> I've got very shiny shoes. Shiny shoes, tight pants. All that. Okay. So now to your second favorite segment, um, nuts and bolts, winners and losers, maybe mm. peaches and pits. You, you suggested that one. I kind of like that one, Patricia. Okay. I'm going to go with peaches, peaches and pits. And pits. Um, there's there's still room there's still yes. room to grow here. So yeah, peaches we, and pitch is not official yet. If if you can please come up with a better idea than that, uh, tweet at Greg or Patricia bring or, email. In or email us because Twitter Twitter's weird. <laughs> okay, we'll do. Okay, my pit for the week is Bill White of the Buckhead City Committee. Um, uh, held a press conference this week um, with a vote of confidence uh, given to him by the Buckhead City Committee. 
I think that is a vote to not have a Buckhead City in the future um, because I think uh, Bill White has been a, a, a tough fit for the state legislators who need to make a Buckhead City referendum happen. And so um, it was a sort of a, a phoenix rising from the ashes or a zombie, just depending on what you where you're coming from um, on that particular issue. But it was a very strange press conference insisting that it's happening, but I just don't think it's going to happen this year. So that's my pit. Um, and for my peach, I'm going to give this to the bipartisan group of lawmakers who are working on uh, this Mental Health Parity Act. It is a group of lawmakers, and a lot of them have their own experiences with family members who have struggled with severe mental illness and a bill like this is being informed by people's, unfortunately, people's own real difficulties and their family members' crises and their communities that are in the worst way. And so it's a bill that I think Georgians will be really happy to see address a problem that really needs help. Amen. Okay, so my peach has to be Sonny Perdue, not because I endorse or have any stance at all on whether or not he should be the next chancellor, but because he, against all odds, honestly, right? Against all odds, who would have thought that that Sonny Perdue would this would actually happen? I mean, I, I said I've said over and over again, never count Sonny Perdue out or any of the forces behind him. But you know, how many different times did this thing seem to be going absolutely nowhere? I was getting tips that the regions were fifteen to four against this. It was held off indefinitely, and then of course the biggest setback had to have been when his first cousin announced a primary challenge against Brian Kemp. I thought, you know, in the back of my mind, I, we, we did a column saying, is it, this thing still going to happen? Don't ever rule it out. But in the back of my mind, I was like, how is this still going to go forward? And yet, after a very, very drawn out process and an overhaul conducted by Governor Kemp of the Board of Regents, Sonny Perdue got a unanimous approval to be the next chancellor of the higher education system. So it's hard not to say that he he had a pretty good week himself. And Patricia, my pit has to be, what has happened to the decorum in the Georgia House? You know, we had a Republican lawmaker, Dominic LaRicchia, who f- flipped the bird at the camera of his formal composite. And then we had a, a very high-profile Democrat, David Wilkerson, vent his frustration using a bad word I cannot repeat right here, and I've never said myself. Um, but look, it, it, that <laughs> I, I'm, I'm joking, but that also speaks to how frustrating and how tempers are clearly flaring over redistricting and over this general atmosphere, because both David Wilkerson and Dominic LaRicchia had reasons to complain. Dominic LaRicchia was drawn into a district with one of his fellow Republicans, meaning that it would he basically forced him out of the House. And David Wilkerson and other Cobb Democrats have legitimate gripes over the power grab from, from state Republicans who are overriding their own local maps to redraw county lines in Democratic Cobb County to align with what conservatives want, which is more representation. So, But de- decorum is taking its is, – is paying a price in that process. I'm sorry you're offended. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's our show for the week. I am very easily offended. Have a good weekend, and we will see you Wednesday on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. 
Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving arts scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.